Okay, everybody. Now, if you have a Bible, uh, you can turn to Galatians chapter 2. We're in Galatians 2 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I can't see anyone at the back who does have any Bible, so you might be stuck. But if there is anyone who wants to hand out some of those coloured Bibles that are in the foyer, you're welcome to do that whilst I grab my own. Now, so Galatians chapter 2, and uh, over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about... Oh, here's Debbie. Any, uh, any, anyone need a Bible? It's like selling popcorn at the baseball game. Here it is. Uh, except they're free. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about some uh, different concepts, and we've been using some different language to talk about those concepts, language like tribes and identity markers, uh, groups and teams and ways in which we create boundaries around our own little team and our own little tribe. And some of you might have felt like we've been harping on about this topic uh, a little bit too long, but it is the message of Galatians. It's the heart of the book. It's the heart of the gospel. And hopefully this morning, uh, we're going we're gonna to take just a couple of verses, and my hope is that it starts to come together today. Some of the things and the themes and the ideas that we've been uh, looking at in the past couple of teachings, the verses that we get to this morning, it starts to bring it all home, starts to ground it all, and hopefully the pieces start to click in your mind. So we're really, it actually has just come down to pretty much one verse. I started looking at four, and in the end, it's basically just one. But we'll read in Galatians 2 from verse 15 through to verse 18, but we are going to focus really just on verse 15 and 16. This is Paul, the Apostle Paul writing, and he says, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law. Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. But if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Uh, I don't know what your uh, extended family is like. I come from a pretty big extended family. On my mum's side, there's eight uh, kids, she's one of eight, and so I've got about 25 different cousins, and it's possibly the most raucous extended family that you could imagine. I mean, we get together Christmas time and occasional other, you know, weddings, funerals, and so on, and they are just so boisterous and noisy and raucous. They make me look quite serene and calm and sedate. Uh, that, 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 you know, any one of them by themselves is, is, is fine, but then you put them all together, and something happens in this extended family. And, and, and the pattern tends to be, that over the years, um, me and my cousins have, from time to time, brought along a boyfriend or girlfriend. You know, as, as, as cousins have started dating, there comes a point where you've got to introduce the boyfriend or girlfriend to the family. You know what I'm talking about, right? And not just the immediate family, you've got to introduce them to the clan. And so, you know, you'd bring this person along, and typically that person, for the duration of that particular family gathering, would be the subject of a certain amount of mockery and ridicule. And this was just a process of initiation. You know, I remember one of the first times that Anna came along to a family gathering um, and we were all sitting around 
uh, and someone over the other side of the room dropped a plate. And instinctively, one of my aunties turned over to Anna and said, oh, Anna, what are you doing? I mean, she was nowhere near it. Uh, but everyone, all, all of a sudden, all eyes were on Anna. And Anna's mortified, you know, she didn't know what was going on. But this is the kind of thing that happens. And so every person, every invitee is desperate for the next person to be invited in. Because then the spotlight goes off them. And onto the ne- and this is exactly the progression with Anna. She was just desperate for someone else to come in. And then finally it's like she's in the family. She, she's a true member. And then this other person becomes the target. And, and on it goes. This is just the way it seems that our extended family works. This whole issue of family and uh, who's in and who's out and the initiation into the family, it's a little bit of what is going on in Galatians. Um, Galatians is not a book about just one individual Christian before God. It's not just a book about the vertical relationship between you and God. It, that's in there. But centrally, what Paul is dealing with in Galatians is this issue of family. Is this issue of God's family and how you tell who's in and who's out. Because you've got this group in Galatia going around arguing that the only way to be in the family is to observe the Jewish law, that the the, the laws of Judaism, circumcision, Sabbath rules, food laws, festival keeping, those are the markers of who's in and who's out of God's family. And Paul is coming along and saying, actually, there's a totally different identity marker of the family of God. It's this issue of family and group identity that leads Paul to talk about a particular concept that becomes so important in the rest of the book, and it's the concept of justification. This word justification or justified, it crops up in uh, verse 15, or is it 16? And then through chapters 3 and 4, if you've read Galatians, it just keeps coming up. And so you need to understand what it means and how it works in the context of Paul's argument. And we're going to spend a bit of time today unpacking this, looking at what is it to be justified How does justification work in the context of God's family? And so Paul starts in verse 15 by saying, We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. This is interesting because Paul, remember, is writing to Gentiles. Half his church are Gentiles. And yet it almost sounds like Paul is putting himself in in the shoes of, of someone who doesn't like Gentiles. He says, we who are Jews by birth are not sinful. I mean, that's basically a slight at half his church. That's like saying you sinful North Shore people. I mean, it doesn't exactly help you win friends and influence people. Paul is using language that's actually quite inflammatory towards Gentiles, calling them sinful Gentiles. But what he's doing is putting himself in the shoes, for the sake of his argument, putting himself in the shoes of a typical first century Jewish thinker. This isn't any slight on Jewish people, but this was just the mindset. Jews in in, in this day would basically divide the world into two groups, the Jews and the rest of the world. And the rest of the world, the non-Jewish world, were, were the sinful Gentiles. They were, in every way, the outsiders. They were the ones not in the family. They were the ones separated from God. And there was this huge big boundary line between Judaism, the family of Abraham, the circle of Judaism, and the rest, the outsiders, the sinful Gentiles. And Paul makes this opening comment so that we will see the worldview of the typical first century Jew in those kinds of stark black and white terms. Not that that's what Paul is buying into anymore, 
But he's saying this is how the world looks. And this is how the world looks from the perspective of those who are antagonizing Paul's church and trying to convince people the only way in is through the law, is through the Jewish laws, through these particular boundary markers. Paul says, you see the world in this black and white way, Jewish people and then all the rest. And as quickly as he set up those two categories, Paul then flips around to the other side of the table and gives us the counter perspective, gives us the true perspective on this issue. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, justified. What, is, what does this word justified mean? Dikaios. The word, the Greek word is taken from the realm of law. It's a legal term. And in its most basic sense, it, it's simply referred to the verdict that a judge would give when he acquitted somebody, if he acquits a plaintiff. If he finds in your favor, if the verdict goes your way, you are justified. That, that was its meaning in the everyday world of the first century, justified. It's a legal term. Now, the problem comes when we take that legal metaphor and we just apply it wholesale to our relationship with Jesus. And we assume that what Paul's saying is that to be justified means God, the judge, looks at you and declares you to be not guilty. Now, that's true as far as it goes, but it's not enough. That's right, but it's not right enough for what Paul's saying. It is true that justification is about God looking at a person and delivering a verdict, delivering a very favorable verdict. It is true that justification, to be justified, means to be acquitted, means to hear the verdict of vindication spoken over your life, but it means more than that. And most importantly, it has to do with family. This is the heart of the book of Galatians. Justification is not an individual issue. Justification is a family issue. Justification is about a particular family with a particular head of this family whose name is Abraham. One particular guy the head of one particular family becomes absolutely critical in Paul's whole discussion of justification. Because in Genesis, first book in the Bible, in chapters 12 and 15 and a couple of other places, God appears to Abraham and he says to him, Abraham, I am going to bless you. And what I'm going to do is make you the head of this massive family. Your descendants through the generations are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky, more numerous than the sand on the seashore, they are going to be a, a people of blessing. They are going to be a massive, multinational, multi-generational family that will be my own possession. And I'll enter into a covenant, an agreement, a relationship with them. I will have them as my own people and I will bless them. I will pour out riches upon them. They will share finally in the new creation that I'm going to bring about. It's going to be for this family, your family, Abraham. And even though Abraham never lived to see too much of that happening, there was from that time on this sense of who is really part of Abraham's family. Who's really in and who's out? Who gets in on this massive family that God is building that goes on through the generations and rolls forward and forward and forward? Who's part of it and who's not part of it? If you were a typical Jew living in the first century, the answer was, well, ethnic Jews. 
biological descendants of Abraham. Surely they are the true descendants of Abraham's family. Surely they are the ones who are truly in. And the argument of the Judaizers who are coming into Galatia and disturbing the church there is that the way to become a true member of Abraham's family is both through Jesus and through observing the Jewish law. The whole argument that Paul's running here is that it is members of Abraham's family who are justified. And to be justified is not simply to be acquitted of sin. To be justified is to be included in the family of Abraham. To be included in the covenant family. To get in on the blessings and the promises that were made to that man. To be in the family and to be recognized as a true member, a true descendant of Abraham. So the question of justification is who is a part of the family? Justification is individual, but it's also communal. It has a vertical dimension. It is about your relationship with God, but it has a hugely important social dimension. We are justified, if we are justified at all, into a family, into the family of Abraham. And so if that's what justification is, the question in this passage is how does a person get justified? How does a person hear that verdict spoken over their lives? How does a person get into the family of Abraham? Is it just purely biological? Do you have to be an ethnic Jew? Is it through following the law? Is it some other way? And Paul gives us two answers. First, the negative answer, and then the positive answer. First, he says in verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by observing the law. A person is not. In other words, they don't get into the family of Abraham through observing these particular identity markers of Judaism, circumcision, Sabbath, keeping food, laws, so on, so on, so on. These identity markers are not the way in, which is exactly the opposite of what the Judaizers were claiming. They were claiming that these identity markers are what defines you as a true child of Abraham, as a true member of the covenant family, as a true heir of the blessings. And Paul says, but it's not by observing the law that a person is justified. It's not that way. It's not by these tribal identity markers. It's not by these little group identity markers that you put up around yourselves to define yourselves as in. That's actually not the defining feature of who is truly in. And when you think about the law, when you think about this idea of works of the law or observing the law, don't just think of these deeds that we do to try and earn salvation. That's a really simplistic way of thinking about it. The law represents these identity markers that groups, that teams, that tribes put around themselves to define who is in, who is out. And we've talked about this over the past couple of weeks, how we're all often so guilty of defining ourselves by my little tribe and my little team and my little group, just as the Judaizers were doing in Paul's day and setting up these identity markers, whether it's beliefs, uh, theology, experiences, education, following a school of thought, political ideology, whatever it is, we set up our own little tribal boundary markers. We set up our own little works of the law, our own little boundary things, and we say, this is what gets me in. This is what defines who's a real Christian. 
and who's not a real Christian. These are the things that set up the real family. And we start to treat others who don't follow our thinking, who don't follow our practices, who don't look, think, sound, worship, pray like us. We treat them as outsiders. That is depending on works of the law. Group boundaries, group fences, group walls to try and get ourselves in and try and define who's in and who's out. But Paul says it's not that way with God. It's not through works of the law that a person is justified. What it is, he then goes on to say, a person is not justified by by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. That's the positive answer to the question, how is a person justified? How, how does a person get in to the family? Not by the law, but by faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Often, I don't know what comes to your mind when you think about faith, but often we, we treat faith and we seem to talk about faith like it's a commodity, like it's a thing. You find this? You know, we talk about, I've got to get more faith. I've got to have more faith. How's your faith? Haven't got enough faith. Got to get some more faith. I'm not sure if I've got enough faith yet. It's this kind of like, it's a commodity in itself, the way we talk about it. It's sort of like we, we think we've got faith in faith. It's this independent substance. It's like a bank balance that seems to go up and down. How's your faith going? And all, all our emphasis kind of goes on to how, how much faith do I have? But the emphasis in the scriptures is never on how much faith I have. It's always on who my faith is in and where my faith is directed and what my faith is anchored in. And the whole argument that Paul's uh, running here is that our faith, not about how much or little you have, but the fact that our faith is anchored in Jesus. It's the object of our faith that's important. Not the subject, you and me. It's the object of our faith. It's the fact that my faith is simply my dependence on Jesus. It's simply my trust in Him. It's my daily leaning on Him and what He has done. It's not about what I can summon up and muster and how much faith. It's just about me just coming to Jesus and just leaning on Him and all that He has done for me. This is so true that some people translate these verses slightly differently that bring out this emphasis. I'll read the translation and see if you pick up the difference. Uh, In verse 16, we know that a person is not justified by observing the law, but by the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Can you hear the difference there? So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by the faithfulness of Christ. You see how that swings it around? Both options, by the way, are, are grammatically possible. And what I love about that translation is it brings out the object of our faith. That it's not really my faith that's so much in view here. It's Jesus' faith. It's Jesus' faithfulness towards God. What, 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 what do we mean by that? It means Jesus lived this faithful life before God, this perfectly faithful life. And then he died this perfectly faithful death in obedience, in perfect conformity to the will of the Father. Jesus died on our behalf for our sins, a faithful man. And as a result, by raising him from the dead, what God did is he justified him. And here's the essence of the doctrine of justification. That on that Sunday morning, 
that Easter Sunday morning. Jesus wasn't just resurrected. He was justified. And that another way of talking about Jesus' resurrection is to talk about Jesus' justification. That in the first instance, it's not you and I that are justified at all. It's Jesus. That God vindicated Jesus by raising him from the dead. That's what God didn't just say it. He did it. He rose Jesus from the dead. That was the ultimate verdict of acquittal right there. That God recognized the faithfulness of Jesus, the righteousness of Jesus, and he raised him from the dead. Jesus is the justified one. And what God declared, here's the clincher for the whole family thing. What God declared when he raised Jesus from the dead is that Jesus is the one true member of Abraham's family. That's, that's the heart of it. Who's really a part of Abraham's family? Who's in, who's out? Really just one person, Jesus. He's the only faithful descendant of Abraham's family. When Jesus died, he died as the last true Israelite, the last faithful Jew, the last true descendant of the family of Abraham. And when God raised him from the dead, he declared that Jesus, you are the one true member of Abraham's family. There's no one else ultimately that's really a true member of the family except Jesus. Jesus, you are justified. That's what happened on Easter Sunday. God raised him from the dead, justified him, declared Jesus to be in the family, declared Jesus to be vindicated. So now what happens with you and I is that we are invited into the family through Jesus. This is good theology right here. God doesn't look at you directly and say, you are justified. He looks at Jesus and says, you're justified. And as we come to Jesus, we're justified in him. How many seats are there around God's table? Just one. And it's Jesus' seat. We come to the table through him. We are justified in him. We are saved in him. Jesus is the only truly justified one. The only one who truly heard that verdict of acquittal spoken over his life. But now you and I have the unspeakable privilege of coming in through him, wrapped up, as it were, in his identity. We're brought in through him. We're consumed by him. It's like Jesus just envelops us. And he brings us into the family of God, totally wrapped up. And it's him that gets in. We are just totally consumed in the identity of Christ. God justifies you only after he's justified Jesus. And that is the heart of the, faith, the doctrine of justification by faith. It's the faithfulness of Jesus that justifies it. Not how much faith I can muster up. Not you going about this week going, oh, God, I just don't have enough faith. If I could just have a bit more faith. You know what that does? That comes back to you. That's all your effort. That's just you trying to justify yourself by trying to muster up faith. What it is is you just falling on the faithfulness of Jesus. Just reminding yourself and drawing to mind when you're at your best and when you're at your worst, it's the faithfulness of Jesus. He's justified. He's already declared to be righteous, declared to be a member of the family. I get in through him. You know, I slip into the nightclub under his jacket, if you like that metaphor. We get in with him. We get in on his coattails. It's nothing to do with you. It's nothing to do with your group identity markers, your little defining boundary thing. It's all about the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. That's what justifies. That's what gets you into the family.
And so, when you step back from this doctrine, it's a bit like, do you know that game show Jeopardy? Is it still going? I don't know. The, the game show, I'm just young enough to remember it. The game show where uh, you get the answer and you have to come up with a question. That's it, it, a good way of thinking about the doctrine of justification. If justification by faith is the answer, what's the question? And I would argue that the question is not, how does an individual person get saved? I would argue the question is, how does a person become a member of the family of God and share in the blessings promised to Abraham? Justification by faith. Now, in that, of course, is the idea of personal individual salvation. But what I want you to see this morning is it's so much bigger and broader. You and I are so conditioned to think individualistically about our faith because we are Westerners and because we live in an age that is obsessed with individualism. And we've imported that into our theology. And we can only see as far as me and God. We're obsessed with the vertical relationship. And don't get me wrong, that's critical. But God never saves an individual just as an individual. He saves you into a family. You are redeemed and saved into a community. You, through Jesus Christ, are brought into the community of the covenant. You're brought into the family of Abraham. And so what happens is justification not only redeems you before God, but it unites you to your brothers and sisters. Because it's the common ground that you share with every other person that's walked through the same door and now sits at the same table. Justification is ultimately a social issue. It affects our relationships with one another. Can you see now why Paul has been saying all that he's been saying about groups, teams, tribes, boundaries, fences, walls, separations, disunity? It's because justification is the one thing that matters. Justification in Christ is the one thing that pulls us together, unites us to each other. Justification doesn't leave us in this little Christian cocoon just in a little corner with me and God having a good time, justification moves me to look for any walls, fences that exist between Christian brothers and sisters and do what I can do to bring them down. Because justification in Jesus is the only unifying principle in the family of God. Justification is not a doctrine that just concentrates on you and God. Justification should move us to look around and say, where can I see disunity? Where can I see other things that separate people, that try to set themselves up as the defining identity marker of Christianity, of the family, of inness and outness? Wherever we see those things, and wherever those things are not the cross of Jesus Christ, our job is to lower them and soften them and pull down those fences so that the faithfulness of Jesus is the only thing that brings people together. I met this week with uh, a group of pastors um, on the North Shore, and uh, I didn't realize it was happening, but there was a guy that came to this meeting as a special visitor this week, uh, an overseas speaker. I won't tell you his name, but he is a very well-known um, Christian author, speaker, uh, and, and, and just has a big, big reputation. Uh, he is a guy that I would have a lot of disagreement with about a lot of different things. He is a guy that I would think differently on so many different issues that I wouldn't even know where to start. And he was there as 
the speaker in this gathering. And I really sensed, as I was sitting there listening to this guy, that God was just tapping on my heart and saying, this stuff that you've been teaching these last couple of weeks, do you actually believe it? The stuff about unity, the stuff about the cross being the only thing that actually unites people, the stuff about other boundaries not mattering as much as we think they do, are you prepared to actually live it? Or is it just okay for everybody else? And God just had to work on my heart in the context of that meeting. That even though I, I, I do have huge disagreements with this person, one of the things he said right at the end of this meeting really tugged on my heart. He, he referred to an old uh, proverb that I think is attributed to St. Augustine, which goes like this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, diversity. In all things, agape, or love. And I thought, you know, for all the things that divide us, and I didn't say this to him, but for all the things that would separate me and you, and we could have all kinds of conversations and conflicts about those things, justification in Christ is really, at the end of the day, the only thing that matters here. The common ground that we have at the cross of Christ, and we both stand firm on that, despite a bunch of other things. And I'm not about to give up my convictions on these things, and he's not either, and there'll be all kinds of contexts in which we would really struggle probably with each other's teaching. Not that he'd have any idea who I am, but you know. Uh, but God just did a work in my heart and reminded me that we've got to come back to the centrality of justification by the faithfulness of Jesus as the one and the only thing that defines the family of God, that clarifies who really is him, and it gives us a mandate to work for unity in an incredibly fragmented world and an incredibly divided church. It's the cross of Christ that can pull together. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this doctrine of justification by faith. I thank you, God, that it's not something that just leaves us on our own. I thank you that you've saved us into a community I thank you that you've saved us into a family. I pray, Lord, that you would just remind us of the, of the importance of this community, of this family, in our own discipleship, in our own growth, for the things that we're going through in our life. Father, remind us the importance of your people. Remind us that the faithfulness of Jesus Christ doesn't just get us in good standing with you, but it brings us into community with one another. And it creates a family. It creates a people. It breathes out a whole tribe that is united around the incredible thing you did on the cross and through the empty tomb. I pray that that would unite us. I pray that it would pull us together across all kinds of divides and trenches and impasses, and it would lead us to work for unity wherever we find disunity and brokenness. I pray the doctrine of justification by faith would work in our hearts and would lead us to look around and would lead us to strive to be more united with brothers and sisters in Jesus. Father, as we take communion now, as we take these emblems that remind us of your death and your resurrection, I pray that we would do so being so aware of those around us. I pray today that this wouldn't be just a little ceremony that insulates us and cuts us off from one another, but something that ties us to one another. I pray, Lord, that this communion feast would bring unity and would remind us that we're all on the same team. We're all serving the same God 
And it's the faithfulness of Jesus Christ that is the only thing that justifies us, the only thing that truly matters. So may this be a unifying meal today as we sit around your table together. In Jesus' name, amen.